This is Mother Mita Santanu with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Teresa Gomez, an enrolled member of the Pueblo Isleta and a lifelong resident of New Mexico. She currently serves as a program manager for honoring Native life at the University of New Mexico's Community Behavioral Health Division, and Suzanne Perlman, a nationally recognized specialist in curricula development, training programs, as well as subject matter expert in cultural adaptations of standardized curricula with a focus on equity and access. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We would love to get to know you more. So would you please share a little bit about yourselves? We'll start with Teresa. Okay, great. And good afternoon. It's great to be here with you all. And uh, again, my name is Teresa Gomez and I am from the Pueblo of Isleta. And I have been working in the area of health and mental health for quite a number of years. And primarily my focus has been on Native American communities, but my focus also has been around health equity and health disparities at a local and national level. I am a ovarian cancer survivor, and so I do a lot of work around equity and disparities in the cancer arena. And so it's just really lovely to be here with you all today. Suzanne? Yeah, this is Suzanne. Thank you again for having us, Madhu. We are so excited to be here. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I am actually, I work for myself developing curricula and training programs, but also a national trainer of mental health first aid and the programs that they offer and training new instructors and getting the curriculum out broadly. And actually that work itself really connected Teresa and myself and other advocates and communities around how do we take a model that's focusing on mental health and really honor experiences of communities that don't always look exactly like that Western experience. In fact, most don't. And so that really had sparked a lot of work for us around mental health and mental health equity and really supporting not only folks' experience, but also young people. We know most mental illnesses tend to show up in adolescence. And so how do we get ahead of that? And so that's been a real big passion that Teresa and I and others have worked on together. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm so happy that you both are here. So both of you have specialized in working with Indigenous people or youth. Why is that important to you? And we'll start with Teresa. Well, it's important to me because, as you and I have mentioned, is I grew up in the Pueblo of Isleta, and my work being focused on um, Native communities and Indigenous populations, I know and have lived and experienced those traumas and things that have affected, negatively impacted our tribal and, and other communities here in New Mexico. And so... I know that sometimes it can be overwhelming work, but I also know that making the difference in one person's life really means a lot. And I know that as we get the message out about mental health and our indigenous communities, the wider we are able to spread that message, I think the more impact that we'll have. And then Suzanne, if you'd like to share. I would say, you know, I while I have expertise in developing curriculum and training, really my expertise in working with tribes is more so amplifying the voices of those communities. I'm not an enrolled member. And so as a guest that's invited into communities, I'm really passionate about making sure 
that when we're talking about health inequities, it's so important to contextualize the systems that have created those inequities and that it's not the individual, the family, the communities that are often blamed for mental health challenges or substance use disorders, but rather systems that are developed historically for and by Western audiences that often have historically traumatized communities or have not always served adequately those communities. And so really it's more so making sure that my role is to adequately, authentically amplify those voices in curriculum that's developed for and by those communities. Thank you both so much for sharing that. It really means a lot. So at this time when our physical health is so threatened by this pandemic, can you talk about the impact of that on our mental health? Maybe we can start with Teresa. Yes, absolutely. We can't forget the impact that this pandemic has had on everyone's mental health. And from first responders to ER doctors to, you know, nurses to frontline workers to every person has been affected in some way. Their mental health has been affected by this pandemic. And what we're seeing in places like New Mexico and within our indigenous communities and all of our communities is that separation. We are social beings and we have not been able to connect with one another unless it's through Zoom or telephone or, you know, means that we're not able to gather in a way that is meaningful to us and to our families. And so the pandemic definitely has had a negative impact. But I also want to say that we really need to think about the resources and the strengths that we have within us and within our families and within our communities that are at our fingertips. And and we really want to focus not only on the risks and the negative impacts, but what are some of the strengths? What are some of the things that have come out of this that, you know, in some cases, our families are closer In some cases, our families talk to each other more often. In some cases, we are seeing that families are talking about traditions and ceremonies and and our cultures in in ways that we didn't pre-pandemic because now we actually have the time. We've slowed down a little bit our busy life where we're not as engaged maybe sometimes with our families as we could be. And so I think in in some respects, the pandemic has really opened a door to looking at us in a way that says, yes, we're not able to maybe physically be together, but there are surely a lot of strengths and tools, I guess, that we have that can make us stronger people. And Suzanne? Yeah, I just want to continue on with this, this thought process that Teresa's brought up, which is, you know, when we think about even the root word of disorder just means out of balance. And so all of us, you know, taking a look at the risk factors that exist in our life and the strengths and resilience and protective factors that we have in our life, it's so important that they don't live isolated. And so 
at this time in particular, where we know that there are higher risk factors, people who have chronic conditions maybe are more isolated and access to care might be scarier, or we already know that there's uprisings and that we're addressing racism in our country and seeing it specifically even with the treatment of COVID, there's all these additional risk factors that are existing. And maybe the things that we did to take care of ourselves, we have less access to. But I love that Teresa's pointing out that also there's this beauty of community and culture, and particularly she's bringing up in indigenous communities that still figuring out ways to come together in spite of trauma and risk factors continuing to connect. And I just want to point out that the most important thing that we can do is to normalize the conversation around mental health. Mental illnesses are common. Half of us in our lifetime will be impacted by a mental illness. And so if we can, in our own ways, in our own cultures, in our own languages and traditions, normalize a conversation about that during the pandemic, we actually, and and I'll share one of my favorite quotes, is that when people don't have to hide their pain, it becomes less dangerous. And so how are we creating spaces where we can normalize conversations and really lean into our strengths and resilience in our community in spite of such incredible risk factors that are existing right now? Absolutely. And thank you for sharing not only the uh, negative aspects of mental health in during the pandemic, but positive aspects as well. I think it's very beneficial. What are the roadblocks for getting support and help? There are, again, especially within our rural and frontier and indigenous communities, and even in the urban areas that we work in, there are numerous barriers. You know, when we think about access to mental health care, even though we may want it, there may not be a facility that we could go to, or we may not have insurance, or we may have insurance, but the insurance isn't adequate enough, or maybe a particular carrier or a particular agency doesn't accept the insurance that you have. And so we see that there are a lot of monetary reasons why people are not able to access services, but also just the availability in and of itself. I know within the state of New Mexico, with regards to workforce, and you pick and choose whatever area you want to talk about, but it specifically around mental and behavioral health, the workforce is so scarce, especially in rural and frontier communities. Again, we're social beings. We tend to want to help one another. And I find that when I'm speaking to someone who not only looks like me, but who has the same experience as I do, then it makes my ability to become healthier a lot easier if I feel comfortable speaking with someone who has had the same experience. But I think workforce is a major issue that the state of New Mexico and others are really going to have to look at how do we overcome that particular barrier. And Suzanne? Yeah, I again, just taking it from where Teresa was leaving off, this important factor of having peers, family members, community members who look like you, talk like you, have your your family's best interest at heart, having more information about mental wellness. You cannot have wellness without mental wellness. And so having many people, you know, when you break your ankle, you don't walk on it until a doctor runs into you. Generally, you have some information or somebody in your life supports you around that. And we need more people on the ground in our communities 
who have more information about mental wellness that can hold conversations. People in recovery often say the number one reason why they sought recovery was because someone close to them suggested it and normalized the conversation and didn't judge them. And so, yes, professionals and having professionals who represent the communities that they're serving are so, so important, but also having those immediate people who notice shifts and changes and concerns so that they can support someone. Um, it's so true that human connection and socialization drives wellness and illnesses often drive continued isolation. And so the people who would notice that most are the people in our community, the people who look like and talk like us, who are around us. And so it's so important that we don't just have professionals having information, but that we're all working together to support each other. Absolutely. I totally agree with both of you. And thank you so much for sharing that. What are some of the things that sustain mental health? When we think about increased risk factors, I want us to imagine a seesaw where on one side, we have things that impact our, our mental wellness potentially negatively. Now, risk factors are not causal. Risk factors do not cause mental illness, but they do increase the probability. And so that means that when we think about this seesaw, on the other end, we have to have those things that strengthen our mental wellness, protect us against some of those risk factors in our life. And so I think it's really important for all of us to focus on what restores us. First of all, how do we even know that we're being impacted negatively. What are our tells? I can say for me, I get a little rough around the edges, maybe a little more apathetic when I know that I need some self-care, I need some mental health refueling. And so I think it's so important for folks to be able to not only have some insight and some information, but also tools in their toolbox to be able to take care of themselves and to reach out to others. And, and one of those tools is mental health first aid. Going through a class similar to first aid or CPR, what do I need to know? What might I see and what do I do? So that we can all be speaking from the same handbook. We know that mental health, mental wellness, health in general, those decisions are often informed by our culture and our history and our families. And so, so often we're talking about different things when we think about what causes good health, what causes bad health, or what we perceive to be bad health. And so it's so important to get some information around not only what does all that mean, what does it mean to us, how we can support other people, but also what are those resources when I need to be able to reach out. You can't have wellness without mental wellness, just like you can't have wellness without physical wellness. And so I'm thinking that in terms of sustainability, that we really need to be speaking about mental health and mental wellness the way we speak about physical health and physical wellness and not be ashamed of it if we need help with our mental well-being or we need help around behavioral health. I think that it would do a lot of good to raise that awareness that mental health and physical health are just as equally as important and also reducing the stigma around mental health. Tell us more about equity in mental health. First of all, what is equity in mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think before we talked about, historically, we used to talk about disparities, which means as though like maybe a community isn't trying hard enough or they're not accessing the resources. And now we talk about equity or health inequities. 
that exist. And so what we know is that some communities have higher rates of health challenges or mental health challenges than others do. And what we know, as we were talking about before, is that oftentimes the systems at play, whether that's racism, lack of access because of health insurance, poverty, systems even being in a community, and all of those things often have connectivity to historical racism or just lack of access since the founding of our country. And so really addressing those inequities means that everyone can access healthcare as well as mental health care and not have barriers like we talked about before, those barriers that exist as someone is trying to be able to attend to or to be able to treat or monitor wellness in general. And to add on to that, I would also like to talk about equity in terms of, you know, we sometimes we've, I don't know if you all have seen the, you know, the bike analogy, where just because you give everybody a bike doesn't mean that that bike is going to work for that particular individual. When we think about equity, we're not only thinking about equal distribution of resources, we're talking about equity in terms of resources that meet the needs of the people that we're trying to provide resources to. I think for me, equity is really about digging a little bit deeper about how well we're meeting the needs of our communities. And if I could add just really quick, because I think Teresa brought up such an important point about it's not one size fits all, Who also is making decisions about what's best for a community? And so often the voices of that community historically have been missing in the decision-making, in the, the funding choices. And so health equity means that at all levels that community members have access to being a part of and driving that discussion. Absolutely. Could you tell us more about the biggest health equity issues in New Mexico that impacts mental health services? So when I think about some of the health challenges, you know, it's such a multifaceted question. I think if you asked any of our Department of Health or Children, Youth and Families Department or Indian Affairs or Aging and Long-Term Services, or then if you went to the governments at each of the individuals, tribes, pueblos, or communities, or, you know, community by community, you know, I think the answer to that might look different because some of the challenges in those communities look different. And so I will say with humility, I know that in our state, access is such a huge barrier. It's such a huge challenge. But if I had to say, yeah, one of the biggest barriers is just making sure that everyone has access to healthcare and mental health care equally with equity. And I will say also just as a, if you had to say another like sub concern is also we cannot lose mental health professionals in our state that our young people, we need them to stay here. We need our young people. We need to pay them well. We need to train them well. We need to get them ready for the communities and the challenges that exist right now so that we can get there. Our uh, resource, we, we are so blessed with our young people and they are so smart and they have so many answers. And so often because of that lack of jobs and resources, we lose them to other states. And to add on to that, thank you, Suzanne. To add on to that, um, I wanted to say, in my opinion, there are at least three major barriers. First one, it being workforce, which we've already talked about, but access to internet, 
is another major barrier. And I think that in the mental and behavioral health world, we, we utilize a service called telebehavioral health. And that's great that we're able to utilize that kind of service. But what if the person at the other end of the camera doesn't have adequate internet access, maybe doesn't have a computer, maybe doesn't have a phone? Again, we're not able to reach those individuals who really need the resource that we have available to provide. The other major issue, I think, with regard to access is transportation. Something as simple as being able to, you know, find a friend, drive yourself or anything like that, catch the bus if you need to, to your mental health appointment, you know, is really a significant barrier here in New Mexico, even in the city of Albuquerque, where we have a a decent public transportation system, you know, in rural areas, transportation is a significant barrier. So I would say, in my opinion, those are the three top reasons why access is so challenging sometimes. So Teresa, you have a really rich history of working in New Mexico. How does your current role of leading Honoring Native Life as the program manager feed your soul? Well, like I said, growing up in New Mexico, I have a deep and serious commitment to making New Mexico a place where we can feel safe, we can feel comfortable, and we can be able to bring each other up when we're down. But what feeds my soul is to know, again, that it might be the pebble, throwing the pebble across the lake, I guess is what I'm saying, to create that wave, that I may be just a pebble, but I know that as I continue my work, that that will create ripples and that people will become more, you know, in tune with the mental and behavioral health needs that we have here and be able to address those because we've raised some level of awareness around mental and behavioral health. Oh, that was so beautiful. Thank you. Suzanne, as a national trainer for youth mental health, what impact have you seen as a result of your work? What part of your work brings you joy? Mm, Those are great questions. So the impact of the work, you know, when, when I first started training mental health first aid and training around mental health, there was so much work that went into explaining why we needed to talk about this. And again, I love Teresa's analogy of being one cog or one pebble or one part of this movement. And it's been so thrilling to see so many people coming together and people advocating and and so being a part of something that's bigger than myself and also being able to learn and grow as well i think during this time of uprisings and learning about racism and and our opportunity to learn and grow i have just loved seeing how we can get uncomfortable in service of centering other people and so that has been so incredible to see and be a part of what brings me joy I think kind of what I was talking about before was being a part of a movement and hearing people say things like, I've never heard that recovery is possible. And because of this class, I believe that, or, oh, you sparked a light bulb and I'm going to reach out differently to other people. I had in a class once somebody who reached out to me and said, I never knew 
that what I was experiencing was common and to have it normalized that I can go out and have conversations or I noticed signs and symptoms and somebody was thinking about suicide and we had a courageous conversation and they're getting better. It's story after story and it's not my story. It's our collective story of what can happen when we create space for everyone to be able to show up authentically. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for sharing that. So what are some things you do every day to maintain your own mental health? Um, I'm an avid hiker. So right now, because of the pandemic, one of the gifts that I have is I get to be home with my family. I have two boys and a husband and a dog named Mookie. And so Mookie is the big winner here is where I'm headed. For my own mental wellness, getting outside with my dog and seeing all of the beauty that New Mexico has to offer in safe ways with my mask and distancing to make sure that we're being healthy and following policies. But it's so important to be able to get outside and recharge. I'm going to have to agree on both points with Suzanne is I've got a a couple of dogs as well. And one is Milo and one is Barney and they bring such great joy when you just need a hug and and you don't need anybody to say anything back to you. You just need a hug. But also going outside and, and really looking at what is around me and what I can draw upon that's right here in my backyard. And I'm thinking, you know, I heard a beautiful story about talking to the clouds and that the clouds don't have any judgment either. And after a while, if you give that negativity or your worries, I guess, if you will, to the clouds, then the clouds dissipate and then you can feel better about where you're at. So really thinking about what's around me and using those things that we have that are free. I mean, it doesn't cost a whole lot to go outside and stare at the clouds for a little while or to, you know, hug your daughter, hug your family member and hug your your dog. But just really being mindful about, you know, when I'm getting to that place of despair and, oh my gosh, you know, overwhelmed, is to really pull myself back and say, okay, I do have these things at my disposal that I can use to help myself feel better. Yeah, absolutely. You both brought up such incredible and important points. Thank you for that. Is there anything else that you would both like to add? If folks are interested in learning more about mental health first aid, there's actually a national website that's mentalhealthfirstaid.org that folks can go to if they're interested in taking a training or finding out if there's one close by in New Mexico. I will also share that my contact information, if folks are interested in learning more about training or curriculum, is Suzanne Perlman, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. And I also want to make sure that folks have in their toolbox our New Mexico Crisis and Access Line. We mentioned it before as a part of our conversation, and it's so important. You know, I never have crises where I'm holding the brochure that I need when it comes to the resources. And what's so great in our state is there's a lot of advocacy that went into having a 24-7 line that anybody in our state could access. And they have a website as well but I will share both the website and the phone number for folks. And I would highly suggest for folks to add that to their toolbox, to their phone. The website is nmcrisisline.com. So NM as in New Mexico, crisisline.com. 
And then the crisis and access line that people can call is 1-855-NM-CRISIS or 855-662-7474. And their website has more resources, places where you can access and look for behavioral health providers, mental health providers, uh, wealth of resources. And the last one that I'll mention is the Pull Together, pulltogether.org is a website where folks can search county by county for everything from childcare to domestic violence resources, behavioral health services that exist specifically in their community and, and are being updated consistently so folks can find if they need supports. And Suzanne, would you mind mentioning the number for the text line? Oh, that's a great point. Yes. So we also can use, and let me just share our national numbers too, because then it doesn't matter where you are in the country or who you're trying to support. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which focuses on any kind of emotional well-being support, is 800-273-2855. Once again, 800-273-2855. And the crisis text line is 741-741. And uh, you can text anything. You can text MHFA for mental health first aid or safe or home or hi. Any word that you text will get a conversation going and they can talk you through anything and resources or even connect you to state and local resources as well. Well, thank you, Teresa and Suzanne for being here and talking with me. It truly means a lot. And I really appreciate all the work that you both have done. It's truly inspiring and so beneficial. So thank you so much. Thank you, Madhu. Thank you, Madhu. And thank you for helping us get the word out. We really work hard to raise awareness about mental and behavioral health. And so thank you all for helping us get the word out. Of course. Thank you for being here. For Generation Justice, I'm Madhumita Santana.